The readings from 1 Peter. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Thank you, Rob. Well, good morning, church. You know, as we're singing, I surrender all, if we're honest, I think sometimes we'd sing, I surrender some, right? It's convicting a little bit. But the point of that song is a song of desire. Okay, he said, well, I can't sing, I surrender all, so I guess I won't sing that this morning. No, it's a song of desire. That's what we want to be. I surrender all. God, just pray, take us there. We're work in progress as we move there. And there are days that we're doing that and other times we're not. And I say we. But that's our ultimate goal is that we can surrender everything to the Lord. It's the best place to be. We look at this passage in a moment of 1 Peter chapter 1. But in 1937, architect Frank Lloyd Wright built a beautiful house for industrialist Hibbard Johnson. Well, one rainy evening as Johnson was in his new house and and was entertaining distinguished guests for dinner, uh, his roof began to leak. The water seeped through directly above Hibbard Johnson's head himself, uh, dripping steadily on his bald head. Irate, he called Frank Wright in Phoenix, Arizona. He said, Frank, you built this beautiful house for me and we enjoy it very much. But the roof leaks. And right now I'm with some friends and distinguished guests and it's leaking right on top of my head. There was a pause on the line and Frank Lloyd Wright replied, well, Hibbard, why don't you just move your chair? (laughs) Not a bad solution. Temporarily, however. Is that the answer to a leaky roof? Move your chair so the rain doesn't hit your head. No, no, the leaky roof at some point is going to need to be addressed. And I liken that to troubles and grief in our lives. Into each life, troubles will come. Or as singer Ella Fitzgerald put it, into each life some rain must fall, but too much is falling in mine. Into each heart some tears must fall, but someday the sun will shine. Is the answer to your trouble simply to move your chair? What do you do as you wait for the sun to shine? Well, that introduces us to the section of Scripture we're looking at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to look along with me, 1 Peter chapter 1. We began a new sermon series last week in this first letter written by Peter to the scattered and battered believers in Asia Minor. 
And this book is all about living on hope. Living on hope. And as we pick up verse 6 of chapter 1 today, the subject matter, as I said, is grief. Of course, my title, Good Grief, is a play on words from one of my favorites. You may think overused resources for sermon illustrations. Well, I won't disappoint poor Charlie Brown. Everything seems to go wrong for him, right? And, and after every single time that Lucy pulls the ball out before the kick, and after every time Charlie Brown sees Snoopy doing something obnoxious, or every time after he hears Linus give some smart aleck response, or Charlie Brown gets knocked out of his socks after a pitch, or he sees the kite-eating tree devour one more of his kites, what's the response of poor Charlie Brown? Good grief. All right, you're with me. Good grief appears to be an oxymoron. Like jumbo shrimp, boneless ribs, Microsoft works, <laughs> hospital food, random order, government organization. I know where you're going to kind of like them. Pretty ugly, campaign promise. Dodge Ram, Plymouth Reliant. Remember one of those? Plymouth Reliant, was it? And you have some of your own uh, oxymorons. Good grief. How can grief be good? Well, we have a little theology of good grief right here in these verses this morning. And my first heading this morning is reality of grief. Reality of of grief. That's my first heading this morning. Look with me. 1 Peter chapter 1. Like I said, we ended in verse 5 last time. We pick it up in verse 6. And there's an immediate connection to what we saw last week. I want you to notice the first two words of verse 6. In the NASB and the NIV, the first two words are in this. In some translations, it's uh, uh, in which. So in this, in which, links what he's about to say, what he just said. Well, what did he just say? Well, I don't want to rehash last week's sermon, but what is it, what is it that Peter just talked about in verse 5? Well, what, what, he's talked about what God has given us, a new birth. What is God guaranteed? An inheritance. What God will keep to the end, the inheritors. In this, he says, verse 6, you greatly rejoice. Now, not only rejoice, but greatly rejoice. Now, translators really struggle to capture how strong this rejoicing is. If you were to have a translation that said super abundantly joyful, then that's more like it. It's to have the greatest joy possible in the profound sense, not in the circumstantial sense. It's to be exceedingly glad, which I think the translation Rob had said glad. It's to be exceedingly glad. You see, pain and joy can coexist. It can coexist. The world says, no, 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 no. You are either in joy or you're in sorrow, but not at the same time. The reason the world believes that is because it's based on circumstances. And I dare say that a lot of Christians feel the same way. 
Some, some don't really believe, verse 6, that, that you can have joy in the midst of trials, which is where Peter goes next with this. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, still verse 6, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. See it? Grief is a reality of life. And that should strike you as rather obvious. But at times we seem surprised when suffering hits, as if this shouldn't happen or God somehow let us down, or that a child of God shouldn't have to go through this. Living hope, as we spoke of last week, does not cancel grief. Grief is a reality. And you know, frankly, the Christian community doesn't do this whole grieving thing very well. Let's be honest, we don't. But, but, but it's not unchristian. It's not unspiritual to speak of your pain. Consider Job when he experienced one trial after another. He, he screamed in agony, and yet it says of Job, he sinned not. You can be honest about your grief. There is no sin in that. The God who made us built into us a normal human response to hardship. Don't push that away. Don't deny your grief. I read about Mae West, perhaps you heard this story, whose career, Mae West's career as an actress spanned seven decades. In her younger years, she was known for her beauty and really as a sex symbol. And it had a lot to do with her rise to fame. But as the aging process began to show uh, her, uh, the inevitable wrinkles and, and lines in her face, Mae West could not deal with it. She, she did not want to believe her glamour would fade. And she was in such a state of severe denial, she removed all the mirrors in her house. And she was, her house was loaded with mirrors because in the younger years she liked looking into it. That's how vain she was. So look at me. I look so good. Well, she had all those mirrors removed from her house as the aging process snuck up on her and, and took over, and all of them were carried off. Every mirror was removed. She figured if she didn't have to look into the face of reality, she could live on. Now, for some, that's how they deal with pain and suffering. We, we, we just won't look at it. The strategy adopted then is to stay distracted, do all you can to get your mind off of it. Some, that's, that's how they go through life. I read this, the South Carolina funeral home a few years back was opening what it called a coffee corner inside the funeral home. And this coffee corner that they were setting up was stocked with Starbucks coffee and had Wi-Fi as well as fireplace and television and so on. Well, a local newspaper had some fun with this and, and put out this contest welcoming people to submit a name for this novel cafe inside the funeral home. You can imagine what's going to come out of this. You're going to groan a little here. Honorable mention awards with a grim roaster. <laughs> The last cup, decoffinated, I know, purgatory. No, I, I knew you were going to groan. I didn't, it didn't stop me. Wake up and smell the coffee. Be nice knowing you. See you latte. Now, the first place winner, this is, this, sorry. First place winner was time to meet your mocha. Now, I mentioned this because the funeral um, home's owner 
He was asked about the reason for this coffee cafe inside the funeral home. Why are you doing this? He said this. I wanted us to get this. He said he hopes it will help mourners get their minds off of what's going on. That's terrible. That's terrible. Some of our funeral services are doing the same thing. Get your mind off of it. To deny the reality of grief and push it down to a place where you don't want to deal with it, it may take years to recover from that. What an example of how we often handle grief. Deny the hard reality of it. Just get my mind off of it. Listen, don't run from your sorrow. Don't mask it. Don't, don't, don't try and dull it through self-medication. Don't, don't become indifferent towards it. No, we're to let ourselves grieve. Otherwise, it's going to turn to bitterness. It's going to turn to anger. It's going to turn to depression. God has equipped us with the capacity for such grief. Peter speaks honestly about the pain they're experiencing. He writes to people who are in great distress. Their pain is real. The trials they are facing are causing grief. He speaks to the reality of grief. Now he goes on to speak of my second heading this morning. Variety of grief. The variety of grief. Right, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And all kinds means multicolored. All different colors. You see, if grief means pain and sorrow and distress, then grief's going to come in all different shapes. If you were to work through the, the, the Psalms, for example, you would discover that the grief, the laments that, that, are, that are written there aren't over the death of a loved one. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's not what you'll necessarily find in the Psalms. But what you'll find is a lament, a grief over the, the hatred of someone else or, or grief over rejection or grief over the loss of community or grief found in feeling all alone or, or grief of the injustices in the world. That's what you find in the Psalms of laments. And it's safe to say, in a room this size, there is a grief of various kinds that fills this room. Grief over loss of employment. Grief over feeling left out this past week on the first week of school. Grief over the loss of a pet. Grief over the loss of a home. Or loss of a, a partner through divorce. Or loss from a breakup. We experience loss and dropping off our youngest in college. There's loss there. It's grief. And where there's loss, there will be grief. And, and, and that grief can manifest itself in many different ways. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in, in, in Grief Observed, he says, Grief still feels like fear. Perhaps more strictly, like suspense. Or like waiting, just hanging about, waiting for something to happen. It doesn't seem worth starting anything. And he says, I can't settle down. Know the feeling? And if we knew each other's stories, we would soon discover that there's grief in all kinds of trials. But notice that Peter speaks of the reality of grief and the variety of grief as something brief. He says, though now for a little while, he says. Now, when you're in it. Come on, does it feel like a little while? 
Well, brief's relative. If I were to have you hold your breath for 10 seconds and then exhale, that isn't really a long time, but, but for some, 10 seconds might seem long. Now, if you were told to hold your breath for two to three minutes before you exhale, that would really start to feel like a long time. But two to three minutes isn't really that long. I mean, depending on what you're doing. If you're standing at the checkout lane with an active toddler, two to three, five minutes seems like forever, right? But if you say that so-and-so has gone to this church here for a long time, you may mean 10, 10 years. 15 years. And so what you might consider a long time of suffering when compared to endless eternity, it really can be considered brief. It may not feel very brief. But that's because we're comparing our suffering with others' suffering or with a here and now time frame. But connected to forever, match it up against the length of the wonderful future God has for us tomorrow, it is indeed brief. All right, now let me just say a word to you here. Don't go around and give your four little wild talks to those who are hurting. Okay, they don't need to hear it from you. All right, don't. When, when someone's getting hit with some trial, he doesn't need you to go up to him to her or to say, uh, give one of those four little wild sermons or cliches. You know, it's only here for a little while. They don't need that from you. Let them get there themselves. That's not going to be very helpful. Right? And so there, there isn't... We've got to remember, there isn't this one-size-fits-all answer to the trouble that people are facing and experiencing. There isn't. Be careful there. They don't just go, here's a verse for you. Got it? Have you all sat now? Like this letter that was sent to a deceased person. It was sent to a deceased person by the Indiana Department of Social Services. It read as follows. Your food stamps will be stopped effective in March because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. Listen, it says, you may reapply if there's a change in your circumstances. Now, unless their name's Lazarus, there's not going to be a change in their circumstances. I think sometimes that is our approach to the hurting. Here's a verse for you. You didn't even hear anything I just said. That doesn't matter. Here. We treat it like some form letter That should heal their pain. Reality of grief. Variety of grief. Thirdly, let's look, third heading this morning is necessity of trials. I mean, it feels at times the trials we're going through, the troubles we're encountering are pointless. But note a phrase back in verse 6. Let me read verse 6 again. I promise you, I am going to get out of verse 6. But but verse 6 again. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, a literal translation of those two words, had to, is it is necessary. Why are trials necessary? Verse 7. I told you I'd get out of verse 6. Verse 7. These have come so that, here's your purpose statement, your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We see in verse 7 the purpose and the result. Purpose and the result of painful situations. All right, what's the purpose? Well, we need to remember God doesn't delight in pain just for its own sake. 
He has a design for the pain in our lives. Now, an important aside here, important aside here, is that these trials that are necessary are not referring to the trouble we bring into our own lives due to our own sinful choices. That isn't the main focus of these verses. When we do our own thing and we sin against God and we are left with these painful consequences, that's a different matter than what is in front of us here. The reason these trials are necessary here in context, the reason we can view this as good grief is because of the refining it does in us. It's to prove the genuineness of our faith. Now I ask a question right here. And it's good when you're going through Scripture. Stop, ask questions. Here's a question I ask. Proved genuine to whom? Not to God. He already knows. Doesn't prove anything to the Lord when you withstand trials. He he isn't waiting to see. I wonder if he's going to make it or not. He already knows whether your faith is genuine. But for you to see it. For you to make it through the trouble and know that you're still following Jesus does something for you in your walk with the Lord, does it not? So the proving is for your benefit. It gives you more cause to rejoice because you come on the other side of the test knowing your faith is real. And there's tremendous joy in knowing that. The word for proof here is of the process of testing metal to determine its true character. You might have heard the story of a woman who visited with a silversmith and looked on as, if the, as, as the silversmith held a piece of silver over the fire under some intense heat. He, the silversmith explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were the hottest as to burn away all the impurities. The silversmith further explained that uh, uh, any of, 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 of the importance of, of any silversmith's attention to the silver during this refining. He said that his eyes must be on the silver the entire time it was in the fire. For if the silver is left even a moment too long in the flames, it would be consumed. How true that is without God. His eyes are on the refining process and he knows exactly how long to keep his children under the intense heat. He doesn't leave us there one second too long. Well, as the woman watched the silversmith, a thought occurred to her, so she asked him, how do you know when the silver is refined? The silversmith smiles at her and replies, oh, that's easy, when I see my image in it. Are you feeling the heat of some trial right now? Christ the silversmith has his eye on you. He is all about renewing you into his image. It's not pointless. It has a purpose. Faith under fire. Peter compares it to the refining process of gold that removes all the impurities, making it more precious. Our faith comes under some heat designed to remove the impurities that are stunting our growth. Well, what impurities? I would say anything that is getting in the way of our utter dependence on God. And why do we not live in greater dependence on God? Because we have lots of props that we can lean on instead. Right? He's got to remove some of those sometimes. 
It's in times of testing, the props we've been leaning on are removed. We go, well, what props? Well, you're going to have to sort that out for yourself. But your prop might be your go-to when troubles hit. Something comes in your life, this is what I go to right here. This is what I'm leaning on, this will get me through it. What is that for you? Your prop might be some tradition that you lean on to see you through the trial. A prop may be some prized object that you lean on. We may prize our title. We may prize our good looks or our popularity or, or our smarts. Listen, even good things can become props. People can become props. We're leaning on it. Churches can become props. Children can become props. Ministry can become props. Our jobs. What is it for you? And this is why grief can be good, for it can drive us to the Lord to lean a little more on Him. I surrender all. Now, Peter goes on one, to one more step here. Come, here's the result. The result of that proven faith, what's he say in verse, end of verse 7? Notice it. Praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is re- revealed. Now again, ask the question, what is with this praise, glory, and honor? Now our brain immediately goes to it, first pass here, we think the praise, glory, and honor is of Jesus. Our praise, glory, and honor is to Jesus. But I don't think it's saying that. The more I think on this, I don't believe that's what it's saying. It's not the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus, but the praise, glory, and honor from Jesus. It fits the context. You can work it out for yourself here. That's why I think it's going that on the last day, on the day Jesus comes again, those who endure suffering will receive approval from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will not forget those who trusted him in those those very difficult times. That's how we get through suffering now. Knowing that on that day, the one who took everything we deserve on the cross will commend us for enduring suffering helps us to handle what life throws at us now. And what I believe we can learn from this passage is this. That painful experiences in life actually will enhance our experience in heaven. Think on that a little bit. There seems to be this sense that these trials, as horrible as they may be, will make our experience in heaven infinitely better than not having those experiences. Tim Keller, who influenced my thinking on this a little bit, he tells of a horrible nightmare he had in which his entire family in his nightmare had been slaughtered. When he woke up, having lost them in his nightmare, made the experience of getting them back that much greater. He appreciated his family the day before this nightmare, but it went to a whole other level after the nightmare when he had gotten them back. Experience of losing them made the experience of having them infinitely greater. Right? I mean, you can relate to this in some way. For example, if you've ever experienced your child missing from some store, or from your presence, in what seemed like hours, to have gotten that child back deepens our feelings for them, at least for the moment. Listen, God wants to see you through that trouble to reach its desired end. It's good grief because it has a purpose. 
There is a result here. Don't abandon the process. Let God do what He wants to do with it in your life. Even when everything inside of you screams, run. When trouble hits, that's not the time to walk away. As someone put it, when the high seas are raging, it's no time to change ships. Well, how do we get through it? Well, I remind you of last week's takeaway that fits here once again. I want to remind you of it. It's we get through life when we know how to get through suffering. We get through suffering when we have a living hope. We get through life when we know how to get through suffering. We get through suffering when we have a living hope. See, we can handle suffering because we have a living hope. Well, how does this living hope operate in our lives? All right, my final heading this morning is activating living hope. How does it operate? How, does it, how do we get it activated in our lives? Verse 8. Follow along. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now notice, Peter mentions in verse 8 their love for Jesus. It is love They have, even though they personally have never seen Jesus physically. They they didn't see him with with their eyes. They don't physically see Jesus and and touch Jesus like Thomas asked to do in order to believe. Remember that after the resurrection? Remember what Jesus said to Thomas after Thomas saw Jesus and then touched Jesus and he believed? Remember what what Jesus said next? He said, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you. That's me. We're blessed. Because we're all forced to do in those moments when we can't see and touch him is trust completely in Christ and believe that his presence is with us though we can't see him. There's something in that. When that happens, our love deepens. And we experience what Peter describes there as inexpressible joy. And that's not a bad translation of the Greek here because the word describing this joy there in verse 8 means higher than speech. It is a joy you just can't explain. You can't even communicate it to others. Now, most of us, most of the time, wouldn't have much trouble explaining our joy. Right? Because it doesn't go beyond words enough. And we probably can communicate the joy because it's a joy that's based on circumstances. And people go, of course you're joyful right now. Everything's going well for you. Yes, yes, that's my joy. Inexpressible. No. No, it's very expressible. It's obvious. But what about the inexpressible joy that comes because it's not based on circumstances? How do we activate this living hope? How can we find joy in grief? Now, church, this is not some mental gymnastics in which our minds are placed beyond the matters at hand. We go, oh, praise God, this is wonderful. That's not what we're talking about. When Jesus was at Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the cross, did Jesus say, praise God that I'm going to the cross. I can't wait to be crucified. No. Jesus suffered grief. He was crushed with sorrow. Read it, Matthew 26. And Hebrews 12, though, tells us 
that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. Question. Good place for a question. What was the joy that was set before him? Work it out. Think it through. I'm going to take you someplace here. Maybe you haven't gone here before. I don't know. What's the joy set before him? Well, it can't be heaven, for he already had that. He left heaven. He had the glories of heaven. He came down to planet earth to suffer and die. All right. What was the joy then before him? Isaiah 53, verse 12, and speaking of the suffering Messiah, the Lord Jesus, it says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. What would be his satisfaction? What was the joy that was set before him? What is the only thing he didn't have before when he was in heaven? Us. People. We sang it this morning, these words. He didn't want heaven without us, so he brought heaven down. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I sing that, it kind of gives me some pause, and I go, ah, I don't know if that's theologically correct. I mean, does Jesus need us in heaven in order to be satisfied? Is something missing for him? No, that's not what it's saying. But the more I think on it, I consider the joy set before him. There was greater satisfaction for him in sharing all that he had in heaven with people. Think about that. He loves us that much. He wants to be with us forever in heaven. And so he endured suffering because that was to come. We might say we were his living hope. work it out. All right. That is true on some level. How does that living hope operate in our lives? How is this inexpressible joy possible in the midst of grief, pain, trials, troubles, and the other nonsense going on? Well, we look back to see how Jesus handled suffering. And we make Jesus our living hope. Nothing else. And to grow in our love for him, even though we don't see him now, that's our living hope. And because he's our living hope, that changes drastically the relationship between joy and sorrow in my life. The sor sorrow can actually increase our joy. Remember all the other things I said this morning. But it can actually increase our joy. As Spurgeon put it, the steps by which we ascend to the place of joy are usually moist with tears. Or as an old Arab proverb says, all sunshine and no rain makes a desert. In other words, without storms in your life, church, in my life, we'll dry up. Let our grief, let our sorrow, let all the troubles that are going on around us, let a stormy trial drive us to him. Is he your living hope? What do we do with sorrow in our lives? Well, loss came suddenly for Jerry Sitzer. In an instant, a tragic accident, true story, a tragic accident claimed three generations of his family, his mother, his wife, his younger daughter. 
He writes about this loss in the book, A Grace Disguised. This book is a wonderful book, great food for the soul. Near the end of this book, he looks back on the past three years since the tragic accident, and he concludes with these words. He says, never have I felt as much pain as I have in the last three years, yet never have I experienced as much pleasure in simply being alive and living an ordinary life. He says, never have I felt so broken, yet never have I been so whole. Never have I been so aware of my weakness and vulnerability, yet never have I been so content and felt strong. Never has my soul been more dead, yet never has my soul been more alive. When I, what I once considered mutually exclusive sorrow and joy, pain and pleasure, death and life have been, become parts of a greater whole. He says, my soul has been stretched. Like any living thing, our soul can thrive or it can shrivel. We can diminish or we can grow in the midst of trials. How is or how has your soul grown through loss and suffering and pain and troubles? Can you trust in the Lord that it is really good grief? Let's pray. Let's pray. God, it's so hard to talk on this subject because the last thing I want to do is to treat this lightly because grief is very real to us. And there's some in this room that are having a hard time even seeing past it right now. The loss is that tremendous. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who is uh, spoken of as acquainted with sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he can meet us exactly where we're at. And I pray that to be true for each one in this room this morning. Because I can't meet that need, but you can. Help us, God, to focus and fixate on the Lord Jesus Christ as we come around the communion table. In Jesus' name, amen.